0: If you will turn with me to the book of First Peter, chapter three, and if you can, let us stand in reverence for the reading of God's word. We read verses one through seven last week. I want to do the same this week, but I want to focus primarily on verses five through seven. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves By submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham. Calling him Lord. And you are her children. If you do good. And do not fear anything. That is frightening. Verse 7. Likewise. Husbands. Live with your wives. In an understanding way. Showing honor to the woman. As the weaker vessel. Since they are heirs with you. Of the grace of life. So that your prayers. May not be hindered. Let's pray. Dear God, you do love us, and that is obvious. And so we thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, marriage is this dance between two people who are in many ways opposite. Nothing alike between a man and a woman. Two different ways that they live and two different beings that you have created. But somehow, Lord, in this harmony between a man and a woman in marriage, there is something there that you wish for the world to see. And I pray, God, this morning as we listen to your word, that you would bring into our spirits this reminder of exactly our responsibility to the world. And that is to be witnesses of your kingdom. And that begins at home. And so, God, I pray that you would open our ears, speak to our spirits today. And let us be your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, last week we looked at the first four verses of this text. And I started off with a reminder that there is no man that I know who actually enjoys preaching this text. Because they're going to get in trouble no matter what they say. There is nothing, and I said this last week, I want to emphasize it again this week. There is absolutely nothing in verses 1 through 3 that gives a man authority and the, and the permission to treat their wives as less than human. We are both made in the image of God, both men and women. We both carry the imago Dei, that image of God. We are created by him to reflect his glory in this world. Now, remember the context here of 1 Peter. This is a letter written to the churches, that are spread throughout the Roman Empire in exile. These are Christians living in a hostile environment around people who are not Christians. These are men and women who are find themselves living in new situations where they must live out the gospel in a hostile environment where their neighbors are not Christians, where their employers, or in some cases in chapter 2, speaking about your master as if you are a slave to them, they may treat you horribly, but as a Christian, how do you respond? So what Peter is encouraging the church here is this, that suffering Christians must remember that they are an example before men. In our suffering as the church, we must remember that God is expecting us to be a witness to those who are persecuting us. Now, that's hard to listen to, but it's the gospel. It's part of what Peter here is mentioning. Those in suffering and persecution, you have an opportunity to be a witness of Jesus Christ before your accusers and before those who oppress you. The context of verse 1 and 2 of chapter 3 is those Christian wives who are married to husbands who are not Christians. Remember that context. In order to win your non-believing husband, the husband who is not a Christian, the husband who is in rebellion against the word, in order to win them to Christ, the best way to do this is to let the beauty of Christ come from you ladies and you be respectful toward your husband even though he's not a Christian. That's difficult. And then, in verse three, a reminder to ladies not to let this rightful desire to be beautiful to be only external. Where does beauty come from right inside here got to clean up a little bit nothing there is absolutely nothing ungodly about being clean, <laughs> okay but the problem here in verse three while peter's in, four, in verse three and four is Peter's emphasizing, let your beauty come from the hidden person of your spirit, of your soul. Let that spirit of Christ be your beauty more so than your desire to be externally beautiful. Because what's on the inside will definitely come out to the external. And the context here is this. In the Roman uh, culture of this time, in the ancient Roman world, to be beautiful meant to be extravagant. And women would go to an extreme to be attractive and to allure people to them. Jewelry and their hair would be elaborately decorated and they would have extravagant clothing and they would have perfume upon perfume to mask whatever. But it was all external. There was nothing pure. And so to be a witness to the non-believing world around you, that's why he means here in verse 3 and 4, ladies, let your beauty come from the inside. And he goes on now in verses 5 through 6. We're going to focus on verses 5 through 7 today. He gives an example now, beginning in verse 5, for how the women of old, the women of the Old Testament, how, how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. But this has absolutely nothing to do with the glory of the husband as much as it has to do with the glory of the gospel glory of god the father through his son jesus christ living inside of these holy women and when their hope rested in god rather than in the worldly standards of beauty they would adorn themselves with the beauty of christ and they would do so by submitting to their own husband now what does this look like let's take a look at a few passages of Scripture in the Old Testament to understand what Peter's talking about here in verses 5 and 6. Verse 6, Peter mentions here as an example of a, a holy woman submitting to their husband. He gives the example in verse 6 of Sarah obeying Abraham, calling him Lord. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 18. And let's take a look at this context of this passage here of where Sarah calls Abraham Lord. Are y'all familiar with the story of Sarah and Abraham, how they did not have children until their older years? There comes a point physically where it's difficult to almost impossible for men and women to bear children. And this is the context here. Abraham and Sarah had come to the age where there was no way for Sarah to bear a child. And so when we look at Genesis chapter 18, beginning in verse 9, the context here is this is when the Lord appeared to Abraham at his tent. Remember, three men arrived at the door of the tent where Abraham lives. And the context here is these three men represented the Lord. God himself speaking. And looking at verse 9, as these men makes a prediction and says to Sarah and Abraham that Sarah in her old age is going to conceive a child. Now, we don't really have many people here who are of that age of the grandparent. But think about this. If you are of the age of a grandparent and someone tells you you're going to become pregnant and give birth to your first son, you've never had a baby before and here you are up in your old age. I mean, old, old age. I'm talking like up there. 90s. You're gonna have a baby. Now, what's that lady gonna do? Just like yeah, just like Juanita back here. She just giggled. Did y'all hear that? I'm even looking at the at the faces of some of the ladies here as we say that. You're grinning ear to ear, thinking, That's impossible. I'm in my nineties, I'm not gonna have a baby. And so Sarah, what did she do? She laughs. Look here in verse nine of Genesis chapter 18. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Verse 12. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? See, there in verse 12 of chapter 18 is Sarah's response. Number one, she's laughing at herself. I'm a worn-out old woman, and my Lord is old. So, in this context where Sarah is calling Abraham her Lord, do you sense a little bit of sarcasm? I get a little hint here from Sarah that she's even being laughing at her, her Lord of a husband, Abraham, who's just as old as she is. My Lord But notice here what happens after Sarah gives birth to Isaac. Flip over to chapter 21. Genesis chapter 21. The Lord humbles Sarah here. Because we know the story. The prophecy comes true. The Lord returns, as he says, about a year later. And Sarah gives birth to a son, Isaac. Look here in verses 6 and 7 of Genesis chapter 21. And Sarah said... God has made laughter for me. That's what Isaac's name means. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. The joke is on Sarah. (laughs) And she says in verse 7, And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son. In his old age, even in that language of Sarah speaking about giving birth to a son, she gives that language of respect to her husband. I have given my husband a son. So in one aspect, she laughs at her Lord Abraham, but then once that prophecy comes to and she actually gives birth to a son, she understands her place, her role. God has used me and has blessed me with a son that I can give to my Lord Abraham. I have given my husband the son that he always dreamed. Do you notice the interaction here between Abraham and Sarah? Clearly, Abraham and Sarah, they are an example in the Old Testament of the patriarchs of old and the matriarchs of old that we look back to as an example What was it that that Abraham was called by God to pack up his family and go to the land of Canaan? Who had to go with Abraham? To Sarah. Sarah had to pack up and go with him. Sarah had to leave her family. Abraham had to leave his family. Everything that they owned, all of their slaves and all of their possessions and everyone that was dependent upon them had to pack up and go as well. And they go on this journey that they have no idea where God is leading, but they trust him. That Sarah follows Abraham. How many ladies in this room, or how many ladies do you know, would actually listen to their husbands when their husbands come home and says, God has spoken to me, and this is what we must do. Honestly, ladies, ask yourselves, would you do that? If your husband comes home and says, God has called us to go to this part of the world to teach the gospel to someone who doesn't have the opportunity to hear the gospel and the wife listens to the husband, what's the first reaction going to be by most young wives today? They're going to look at their husband like he's crazy. The question is, is there a relationship between the husband and the wife of trust where the wife listens to the husband? He may be crazy, but you know what? God uses crazy people to do crazy things that no one would normally do because God says, I will do things my way, and human beings look at it as foolish. How many ladies married to men in this day and age of the United States of America would actually look at their crazy husband and say, you know what, Uh, this is a nutty idea. Sarah probably looked at Abraham and said, you're crazy. You're hearing voices in your head, and you want me to pack up and move. Where? But she followed him because she respected him as her Lord. That doesn't mean that Abraham was her dictator. It doesn't mean that Abraham was this man who controlled her thoughts and her life and her actions. It was that there was this relationship between Abraham and Sarah that's very clear in the Old Testament, that even though he was the master and she was the wife, he was the Lord, she was like, there was still this, equal harmony of respect between them that Sarah, at least even though she laughed at her old husband, still respected him enough to follow him because she knew that the Lord was speaking to him. As a pastor, I have counseled many young couples over the years. And the number one problem I see within young couples, especially after their first year of marriage or so, is this trying to figure out the balance as this new married couple about, wait a minute, my mom and my dad expect us to do this, but we're a new married family, and I can't be a family with my wife or my husband because the in-laws get involved. That's the number one thing I see in young married couples. That struggle trying to figure out where do we go for Thanksgiving this year? Where do we go for Christmas this year? Mama's going to be upset if we don't come home. Well, my parents are going to be upset if I don't come home. And there's this tension between the young husband and the young wife trying to balance out this new life together. That's just one thing, right? But just trying to live as a new family, as a husband and a wife, God has said that they will leave their father and their mother and they will cleave together and be one. Now turn back with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. In verse 5 he says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. See, women who struggle to submit to their husbands are those women who, I would argue, according to this text, also struggle to give their hope to God. Those who struggle, those women who struggle to submit to their husbands are those women who struggle to submit to God and his will. If God has placed a man in your life, ladies, to be your husband and to love you and to cherish you, has he not given you what is best for you? And that husband may be crazy. He may come up with some foolish ideas from time to time. He may fail in those crazy ideas from time to time, but that's why he needs you as a wife to love him even through that and respect him. Not put him down. Notice here, I want to give you one more example here in the Old Testament. Turn with me to Esther chapter 7. Esther chapter 7. Esther is that book right after Nehemiah. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Esther chapter 7. If you're familiar with the story of Esther, Queen Esther. Was, she was a Jewish exile. But the king of Persia, the king actually saw her as beautiful and brought her into his kingdom, into his palace and made her queen. And we know the plot here between Haman and and Mordecai and Haman wanting to destroy all of the Jews. God placed Queen Esther at a particular place, at a particular time, for a particular purpose, for the salvation of his people. Now look at what Queen Esther does in chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. So the king and Haman went into feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have not, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with those at the loss of the king. Then the king, Ahasuerus, said to Queen Esther, "Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this?" And Esther said, "A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman." Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And verse seven. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. What happens here in this interaction between the king and Queen Esther? King Hasarus loved Queen Esther enough, cherished her enough, to give her her request, whatever it was, up to half of his kingdom. He was willing to give his beautiful queen anything that she desired. And why is that? If we notice here in this context of chapter 7, and actually the chapters leading up to chapter 7 of Esther, Queen Esther grants the proper respect to the king that he rightly deserves. As Queen Esther is married Clearly, to a pagan king, same context here in 1 Peter chapter 3, where a wife is subject to a husband who is not a Christian, so likewise Esther is married to a king who is definitely not one of God's people. But she respects him as the king, but she also respects him as her husband. And because she respected him and because she gave him the honor that he was rightly due and she spoke to him in those terms and treated him in those terms, notice how the king treated her as a queen. He treated her with love and respect and desired to please her in all that she requested. Notice that? God orchestrated this whole event in the book of Esther. And he called a woman of honor who he knew would give the king the respect that he deserved in order to fulfill the salvation for his people. So let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 3. When we look at verses 5 through 7 of 1 Peter chapter 3, we see the same thing at play here. The examples from the Old Testament are what are being brought into this letter from Peter to the church. Encouraging the women of the church to be beautiful as Christ comes through them. And if those women hope in God, they will submit to their own husbands as God has placed this husband in their life to guide them and direct them and lead them. So in verse 5 and 6, Peter is saying, ladies, Christian women, submit to your husbands. In love and honor and respect. Now, we're not going to have a lot of time to unpack verse 7. But I want to do my best here in verse 7 to speak to the men here as well. Peter is writing to both the women and the men of the church. And he's encouraging them, you are in a position and in a place that God has placed you for a purpose and for a reason. You are God's representatives in these foreign places where you are now living, these cities and these communities where pagans dominate. And how you treat each other in the home is a witness to everyone else. So, ladies, if you submit to your husbands and give them respect, Likewise, verse 7, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Husbands, this is a difficult passage for many of us to listen to because we have to stop and really be honest with ourselves and ask, Over the years we've been married to our spouse, how many times have we truly lived with them in understanding? Guys, it's difficult for us to understand the the mind of our wives, isn't it? I have no idea what my wife was thinking, how she came to that logical conclusion, if there was any logic in it whatsoever. But ladies you think in a different way than men do. Women tend to think with emotion and compassion. Am I correct there? How do I feel about this? Whereas men tend to be a little more logical. We want to know, how is it going to get done? What's the conclusion? What's the payoff? Is it worth my time? Amen? So it's difficult for men to maybe get into the mind of their wives Can the wives say the same thing about their husbands? It's difficult for you to get into the mind of your husband as well. But notice here in verse 7, Peter is calling out the husbands. Likewise, husbands, Christian husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. What does it mean to live with our wives in understanding? It means to be considerate. It means to be sensitive. Not only sensitive To what's going on in the home. But being sensitive to the wife's deepest needs. Being sensitive to her emotional sensitivities. Her emotional well-being. Being considerate and sensitive. Not only to her emotions. But being considerate and sensitive to her spiritual needs. Husbands, we are the spiritual leaders of our home. We are called to provide for our families. We are called to provide financially, physically, but also spiritually. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. You know, I don't normally flip around the text this much, but this is an important passage for us to compare here. Ephesians chapter 5. What I'd like to do next week is perhaps come to Ephesians chapter 5, a little segue away from 1 Peter for a season, and just unpack what the Apostle Paul tells husbands. Because Peter doesn't really expand much in his text in 1 Peter chapter 3, but the Apostle Paul does in Ephesians chapter 5. But what I want us to understand here in Ephesians chapter 5, before we get to those well-known passages of verses 22 through 33, I want us to read the text right before that. A lot of times we overlook what the Apostle Paul is mentioning here. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 15. I mean, the Apostle Paul says this, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. What does he mean there in verse 18 and 19? Don't be like the pagan religions where they see uh the spiritual side being stirred up with drugs and alcohol and, and all these other things. You be different. You address each other with love and respect, addressing one another in the psalms and the hymns, in spiritual songs, singing melody to the Lord with your heart. Let your time together as the church be this melodious song, this time of harmony to the Lord's ears. Then in verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 21 of Ephesians 5 is very important to understand as we transition into verse 22 and 25 where Paul talks about the roles of the wife and the role of the husband. Without the context of verse 21 here, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We miss the meaning of the roles of the wife and the roles of the husband in the home. God has designed husbands and wives to live together in submission to one another. Even though the the scriptures speak specifically to the wife to submit to the husband, the implication is also there for the husband to submit to the wife. Now, there are different roles for the husband and the wife. The husband is called to be the leader of the home. He is called to guide and protect and to serve his wife and his children. But he does so by submitting to their needs, not his own. The wife is called to submit to the husband out of honor and respect. To see him as that leader and as that provider and as that protector that God has given to her as a gift. And the one who has given her children to love. So there is submission to one another here. You see that? The Christian understanding of marriage is not one just solely out of the man is in charge and woman be quiet and listen. That is not biblical. The biblical understanding of marriage is that there is an equal harmony between man and woman as they are both fulfilling the roles that God has given them to be. The husband is to lead and protect and provide. The woman is to submit to that authority and that provision and that respect and that love that he gives to her and follow him wherever God leads them. The husband and the wives talk to each other with honesty in private, not in public in demeaning each other. That means, and I'm going to close with this thought. When it comes to raising children, one of the things that is an example to the world around us, is how parents harmonize their roles and balance each other out as parents toward the children. Make a fun thing out of Respect each other in front of the children. Love each other in front of the children. Teach your children what honor and respect and submission to someone else looks like. Why is that? It's because the Gospels tell us so. From The Old Testament prophets and their wives and their marriages together to the New Testament apostle Peter and Paul telling the church how to live as Christian families. The role is not so much where our place is in this world as much as it is remembering that we are giving a witness to those around us. They look to us for what it means to be a Christian family. They're looking to the church for answers. We have a responsibility as God's people to live in harmony together. Not just in this congregation when we worship, but live in harmony together in our homes. If marriages in the home are not a partnership, where we both understand our responsibilities in the marriage and in the family, but we understand that we're in this together together, And God is going to call us together to whatever he asks us to do. Then we're just going to have nothing but torment and tension in the heart. And the outside world is looking at us. That's what Peter wants us to see. This idea in marriage. There's this term that's thrown around out there a lot. And I think it's a very valid term. It's a way of understanding the, the biblical role of marriage. And it's this idea of complementarianism. Meaning that men and women are designed by God to complement one another. When a marriage occurs, both parties, when they come together, they both have rough edges that need to be smoothed out. Men have rough edges, ladies have rough edges, there's baggage you're bringing into the relationship, and there are aspects of your individuality that are missing. And God, in His providence, will always love His people enough to bring a partner into your life to complement those weak areas. So ladies, where you are weak, your husband is strong. Men, where you are weak, your wife is strong. And you complement each other. And it becomes a harmony of life together. And God uses that as a witness to the world. That's what the gospel meaning of marriage is. And I think that's what Peter is mentioning here in chapter 3. And this is why he calls husbands in verse 7 to live with your wives in understanding. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Guys, our wives are not only weaker physically, but they can be weaker emotionally. And they need us, men, to be that stability for them from time to time. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Right there in chapter 3 of First Peter, verse 7. Our wives are heirs with us. Joint heirs in the grace of the gospel. Now, men, in verse 7, Peter says, live with your wives this way so that your prayers may not be hindered. We're going to unpack that a little bit more next week, I think, in Ephesians chapter 5. I really want to talk to the men next week out of that text. When we love our wives and serve them the way we should, our prayers will not be hindered. Why is that important? Because men, we are the spiritual directors and leaders of our home. If our prayers to God are hindered because of our attitudes and our treatment of our wives, then we're not going to be the good leaders that our wives and our families need. So how do we apply this? Let us remember as a church that we are here together. But understanding what the scriptures mean about living together with someone else applies even to the single person. How do you live with other people? How do you work with other people? How do you become a part of something that is greater than yourself? And why is that important? Because when God's people live together in harmony, when God's people respect each other and love each other in the home and in the worship and in the workplace and in the community, then there is a witness that the world needs to see. And if we remember that aspect of our lives, that it's not about my feelings and my needs and my satisfaction in this relationship, And start to remember that relationships are actually a witness to the ungodly. Maybe that puts things in a different perspective. I am here to be a witness of Jesus Christ to a world that needs to hear the truth of the gospel. And how I live with my family, how I work with my co-workers, how I worship with my church matters. I think that's what Peter's point is in chapter 3. Chapters 2, 3, and part of 4 is exactly his focus here on that. So if, if Peter has said anything to us this morning, I think it's that. Our home life matters. Not just for our own personal well-being, but for the witness of the gospel. So take this home. I don't to ask you just to pray about this. What is it in our home life that may need to realign with the gospel? Is there anything at home right now that is not going smoothly, that is a little out of balance? Is there anything there that you say, what's wrong here? I think what Peter is talking about here is a great example of how to bring everything back into harmony to where it works, as God intended. Father God, we thank you again for the truth of your word. And I pray, dear Lord, that as we listen to the words of your servant Peter, As we remember the examples of the Old Testament. Of Esther and of Sarah. How they respected the men that you have placed in their lives. As the men respected their wives as queens. That dear God. You have created us for this purpose. To learn how to live together even though we're different. So that you receive glory. And I pray, God, that those who hear these words this morning, whatever situation they're in, I pray, God, that you would apply these practical truths from your word in their lives in a way that they see your hand at work. I pray, dear God, that your word would be true to each and everyone who hears it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.